God, we love you, and we thank you for uh, the hope that we have in you. And as we uh, study the book of Esther and walk through uh, her story and the work that you do um, behind the scenes to rescue and redeem, uh, Lord, may we have a sense, God, of the work that you're doing in our life right now. Open us to you and what you have for us right now. We love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Uh, this this morning, I, I've really been wrestling with the book of Esther. Um, I've never preached from it before, and this week was a reminder as to why. Uh, it's a challenging book. Uh, the, it's challenging, uh, I think, in part because it's the only book in the whole Bible that doesn't mention the name of God. God doesn't get mentioned in it. There's not like a handy-dandy little prayer that you can draw from. There's not uh, a lengthy teaching or something that we might draw from. Uh, you spend the entire book kind of wondering, like, how does this work out? And where is God? And I think that that's actually the point of the book. The point of the book is, where is God? And that there are moments and there are challenges in our lives where we might wonder that very question. Where is God? What is he up to? How is this going to work itself out? Uh, the setting for Esther is similar to the last several books that we've looked at between Ezra and Nehemiah. And that is, is that it takes place when the Jews are uh, in captivity with Babylon, post-Babylon, when God raises up Persia, and Persia, uh, then there's King Cyrus sends the Jews home and says, hey, you all can go back home and build the temple. Well, not everybody left. And so those who are left, after everybody's been sort of sent home, like, hey, guys, you can go back to Jerusalem and say, okay, there are some who stayed back in Babylon, Persia, uh, some Jews who did that. And so this, it's this sort of wrestling match of why did they stay? And so you kind of have this question of what, what was it? Were they sort of caught up in the ways of that world? You know, maybe, uh, maybe they had uh, their home there. They had their family there. You know, what, what kept them there? And that they didn't desire to go home. Maybe they couldn't go home. Uh, but there were still several thousand Jews there. And so it's, this, it's a story about the people who stayed behind. And it's a story uh, that begins with this sort of pageantry of Xerxes. Xerxes is king, and he spends 180 days showing off his wealth. Um, it wouldn't take me 180 days to do that. I don't know about you all. Uh, to show off all of your possessions, all of those that make up your home, and show all of the nooks and crannies of your house. Like if we were to, there used to be an MTV show called MTV Cribs, and they would take you through the rapper's house. And I thought, man, this show was awesome. And I realize as a high school kid now that maybe that wasn't the best use of my time. But, uh, uh, like, so there is a Xerxes, there's a Persian cribs going on, and it's all about King Xerxes. And let's show off all of my incredible wealth and possessions and women and concubines and all of the possessions. And then, if the 180 days wasn't enough, 
there was then a seven-day feast, and a part of the seven-day feast was just showing off all of the workers in the palace and also bringing out the golden couches. I don't know about you, but a golden couch doesn't seem all that practical. And I was thinking this week, what is the sort of like comfortability level? Where does a gold couch land on the comfortability scale? There's the hideaway bed couch, and then there's the gold couch. I think it's probably gold couch and then the hide bed, uh, the couch with the hideaway. I'm not sure which one would be heavier, the hide- couch with the hideaway or the gold couch. Um, I've been working on my stand-up bit all week with that. I've been thinking about <laughs> stupid things like that. So he's showing off his incredible wealth. And then there comes this moment where he says, you know, he's drunk and he comes up with this idea. After all of the pageantry, after parading all of the wealth, he goes, you know what? I have a lot of beautiful women too. And, and my, my queen, Vashti, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roll her out in front of everyone. She's beautiful and I'm going to show her off too. And like any good wife, when the husband has a stupid idea, she says, no. Well, it doesn't work out well for Vashti. And she says no, and then they've upset the entire sort of political system, and not just that, and undermining the power of the king by this woman saying no to him, heaven forbid, right? She says no to him, and then the all of his sort of council members come together and say, we can't have that. We can't be having women have their own opinion. It's all in the text. I'm not making this up. <laughs> and, uh, and don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what's there. I don't believe any of that. But uh, for the women, they look at it, and then the sort of propaganda machine kicks in and says, well, you, we sh-, and then like all men have you know, are always right and the women are always wrong and they like throw Vashti under the bus big time. And this opens up the door then because now Xerxes doesn't have a queen. And because he doesn't have a queen, then he gets another great idea which says, let's bring all the beautiful women in from the kingdom and then I'll get a new wife or two or seven out of this deal. And so that's where we pick up the story and it's in, we'll look at Esther chapter 2. Um, we really have to tell the whole story, but uh, we'll kind of get the stage set for what this world is like and what's uh, the struggle at place. So in Esther chapter 2, later when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king commissioners, uh, let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all the beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegei, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shishmei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem from Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Mordecai, had a cousin named Hadassah 
whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. Uh, So when I first wrote my notes down, I wrote Mordecai was her uncle. And somewhere in my reading or whatever, I picked that up. And then I was reading the text again. I was like, why did I write uncle? They're cousins. Well, then I was reading other books. And other people were saying that he was his, uh, he was her uncle, and I was like, okay, I got to figure out why we think that. And it turns out this is total nerd thing. The Latin Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Hebrew Bible, is where that idea comes from. I I think. Anyways, it was a whole rabbit trail, and you guys are like, you could have called her, you know, a step uncle, and we don't care. Uh, but I like to be accurate. And anyways, this text says cousins, so they're cousins. So if you ever pick it up, you could be like the pretentious Bible nerd. Actually, they're cousins. But anyways, so that's out there, and people get it wrong or mixed up. And I, I think, to the best of my understanding from the text, they're cousins. So Mordecai takes care of Esther, who is orphaned, and welcomes her into his home. When the king's order, verse 8 an edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil and myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she, how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to king's palace. In the, ev- in the evenings, she would go there, and in the morning, return to another part of the harem to the care of Shiashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman, Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle, Abiel, to go to the king. She asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes, in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave another great banquet, and Esther's banquet for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces, and distributed gifts gifts with royal liberty. 
I know that the sermon just sort of jumps off the text, doesn't it? I'm like, oh, I know right where Jordan's going with this. Truth be told, I have no idea, but let's give it a shot. As we look at the text and we look at what's going on and transpiring, what we have is a beautiful woman who is essentially taken into slavery under the mighty rule of Xerxes. There's no real, there's no real freedoms for her in this. And one, it speaks to the sort of tragedy of the ancient world and the abuses of, of women and those who are disadvantaged. And so we could go, we could go that route. Um, we could think about maybe how Daniel... Daniel and his faithful friends handled being in Babylon. And we could maybe compare, we could compare Esther and Daniel and his friends. We could think about our lives as, as people who are trying to honor God, yet we have a world uh, that's filled with sort of corruption and brokenness. You know, it, it sure is nice, the progress we've made as civilization. You know, we're, we're not all about beauty and money and wealth and status and power. Like, we don't like to show off that we have things, and, and we don't like to parade around beauty, and, and we don't undergo beauty treatments, and we don't make things all about appearances. Like, so I don't really see how any of this would be very relevant to our world because we don't, we don't struggle with those things. Did the sarcasm get picked up? I hope so. Uh, to quote Tommy Boy, I was laying it on a little thick there, and that's the only time I'll quote Tommy Boy this week. But uh, uh, MTV Cribs and Tommy Boy, I'll see what else I can squeeze in this morning. Uh, and so when we think about the world that we live in, I, I think we can relate to that, can't we? That there is power, there's corruption, there's sex, there's money. They're showing off, and that's just one app that we're addicted to on our phone. That's just one thing in our life that maybe draws our attention and we think holds value and importance. And so poor Esther finds herself caught up in this world. And so far, there's no mention of God, and you can go the rest of the story, and there's no mention of God. And so you kind of start wrestling with, where is God, and what is he doing with this? Because Esther really doesn't do uh, what Daniel does. When Daniel's told, here's what you're going to eat, what does he say? No, not for me. And when they say, you're going to undergo this diet and this system, and they say, no, we're, we're not going to do that. And so we hold up Daniel as one who says, man, he's full-on allegiance to God. He's devoted to him no matter the consequences. He will be faithful to God. And we hold him up. Well, what do we do with Esther? Esther just goes, she goes with all of it. What do we do with her? And here's where I, here's where I think the sermon is. And here's where this, this thing is that just helps us. Despite being caught up in the power and the beauty treatments and all of the things, God uses her. God uses her. Just as God uses Daniel and his faithfulness, God uses her in this moment of her capture and her brokenness and entering into it and She's, she's all in because God is at work. 
despite our brokenness, despite the world and its corruption and its power and all its manipulations, despite the wills and whims of drunk rulers drunk with power and wine, there is still God at work in the midst and in the darkness and in the brokenness. God can still work and move. And I don't I don't know if you need to hear this right now, but I know I do because there are times that I feel an awful lot more like Esther caught up in the world and the wealth and the status and all of the things than I do the faithful guy hanging out in the lion's den. That more often than not, I find myself in the shoes of Esther, corrupted by a world filled with brokenness and over-sexualized and over-beautified and over-Instagramified and over-whatever you want to throw in there, that I feel more like her in her brokenness and her suffering and her slavery to the ways of the world than I do faithful Daniel. And so I have to ask this question, can God use me? Sometimes I feel a little too corrupted, a little too broken, a little too caught up in all of the kingdoms of this world, that I don't know that I always feel of use to the kingdom of God. And so the story continues for Esther. And it's crazy circumstances, and there's a lot going on within all of it, and I don't have time to, uh, to, to work through all of the story, but here it is very simply. There's a plot to kill the king, and Mordecai comes, he discovers it, and he shares it. And then he gets forgotten. But then Esther, she's, she's taken up into this position of power and influence. And, uh, and within all of that is the evil Haman. And Haman is plotting to kill all of the Jews. And so there's, throughout this story, this sort of wrestling match of how is God going to intervene? How is God going to help his people? How is he going to provide salvation? Still no mention of it. Still no mention of his power. No, there's no glorious moment where the seas part. There's no plagues that happen. It's just God working in the minute details of their lives. When they discover Haman's plans and his plot to eradicate the Jews, there's this moment where Mordecai says, maybe you've been called to this moment. Maybe this is what it's all for. For such a time as this that you've been called, Esther, to be in this position that you're in. Yeah, you didn't really have much choice in the matter. And yes, here you are now. But there is someone at work in your life that has led you to this moment that you can, you can help your people. And she's kept her nationality a secret. She's kept, like, it hasn't been outspoken like, like we see in Daniel. It is the exact opposite. Yet here... Mordecai says, maybe it's this moment. And so then uh, King Xerxes doesn't have to call Esther. He could have called another woman, but he calls her. And she says, I am a Jew, and there's a plot to kill my people. And he's like belligerent, like, who, who, who's planning this? And Haman was ready to kill Mordecai on a stake, and he... and. Esther says, well, it's, it's, it's Haman who's got this plan. And then so Haman, he gets crucified, killed. Not, I shouldn't use that word, sorry. Uh, he gets killed on a stake uh, of his own doing and his own making. And so when you look at the story as a whole, that the Jews would be saved, 
you have to look at it through this lens of what I would call the serendipity of God's grace and His work. That there are just too many things that happen at just the right time and just the right way to deny that God exists and that God is at work. And so as you think about maybe what is, what is the takeaway when we read the book of Esther? I wouldn't invite any of you to go down her path. You know, we get people in the Bible that's like, yeah, we can hold up their faith as an example. And you wouldn't say, yeah, go and replicate her story, right? Or maybe there would be something about Mordecai that maybe would be like, yeah, that we can, we can get the lesson from him. Maybe even Vashti, who has the courage to say no and then be destroyed in the propaganda machine. But the hero of the story is the one who's not mentioned. The hero of the story is a God who is constantly at work in the details to redeem and restore and renew. The God is in the details of every moment, and it sort of then starts pulling the story together for us to see. God is faithful. God is at work in our lives. God had a purpose for Esther. And she honored that commitment, and she rose to that moment. And she becomes the hero of the story, not because she entered into all of the pageantry and all of the nonsense of that world and all of the brokenness of that world, but because she saw that God is faithful and at work in her and gave her this moment to redeem and help and save her people. And so when we think about, well, what do I do with this? How How do I navigate my life with this? I think God has a purpose for you. I think He does. And it takes someone in our life to say, I think God has a purpose for you. It takes a Mordecai to say, you know, God has been at work in your life up to this point, and your story, whatever that story may be, God has something for you today. And maybe that's me over-personalizing the text, and I get worried about that sometimes, but honestly, has God used you? Have you had moments in your life where it's like, man, I went through that tragedy, and I went through that hardship, and I went through all of that, but God's given me someone right in front of me, right now in this moment, to love and encourage and say, you know what? I've been there, and God loves you. And then suddenly, all of the garbage and all of the struggle and all of that hardship that you endured started to make sense so that you could bless and love someone in your life. Have you had that moment? God has a purpose for your life. Or maybe God has blessed you financially and you're like, man, God, keep it coming, keep it coming. And then there's someone in need right in front of you. Do you bless them and care for them? Have you had that moment? Have you had moments in your life where you've thought, man, I don't know I made the right decision. I didn't change jobs or I did change jobs. But it worked out that whatever decision you made, God blessed you with a moment that you realized, you know what, God has me here for a reason. God's kept me here for a reason. Maybe the Jews didn't leave yet because God had them stay there for a reason. You know, 
God's at work. God is at work. And so as you hope to kind of walk away from here with like some sort of lesson that you can maybe like apply to your life, I think this is how you apply the story of Esther. I think it's repentance. And here's what I mean by that. When I teach repentance, I usually teach it this way, and then I learned something new about repentance this week, and I'm really convicted by it, and I hope that it lands better than my couch jokes. All right. I've always taught repentance this way. Repentance is you're heading in one direction, you get new information, and you turn around and you start heading this way. It is a U-turn, it is a change of direction, it's a change in your life. And we talk about repentance being, I've been following the ways of the world, I've been sinful, I turn and reject that, and I follow the ways of Jesus. That is still 100% correct. But here's a, here's a better mental picture, I think, for us. Imagine I'm on a train, and the train is heading that way. And I am, I am on the train. And I'm heading this direction on the train. And the train's still heading that way. The way I have treated repentance in my life is, is that I just turn around on the train and I'm walking this way. Am I still heading that direction? I know we had to do a little physics there. All I did was move to the back of the train. I'm in the caboose. What do I need to repent of? What is repentance? The train is heading that way, and I am stepping off, and I am living my life in God's kingdom. Some of us, myself included, have felt like maybe if we're just heading in the opposite direction of where the train is heading, that we'd be okay, but we're still on the path towards destruction. It's repentance. It's saying, yes, I've been in the world, and I see the world for all that it is, and all of the corruption, and all of the sin, and all of the brokenness, and I'm taking on the ways of King Jesus. And as much as I can, I'm getting off the train that's heading towards a path of destruction and death and suffering, and I'm stepping off into a kingdom of light and love and hope in Jesus Christ. Would you step off the train? You know, when we look at a book like Esther, and maybe kind of as a backdrop in thinking, we think of Daniel. Like, how do we navigate, how do we navigate life in this world? You know, and, and so we, we wrestle. Like, what clothing should I wear? What clothing should I wear? And, and how can I guarantee that it's not made in some sweatshop somewhere in the, somewhere around the world? Like, how do I guarantee that what I'm wearing, and it's probably not, right? But how do I navigate life in that? Maybe I become Amish. That's what we're doing this week, okay? <laughs> I'm sure that'll go over well, right? But that, that's the wrestling match, right? At, at, at what point is too much world in my life? At what point is it crossing a line? And so the Amish have drawn their line at a certain point with a certain amount of technology. Then, then there's us who, you know, we have no line. We just do whatever. But where, where do we, how much world is too much world? 
And here's, I think, the hope of Esther. She had all of the world. But she had a faithful God at work. And she listened. And she obeyed. Would you repent where you need to repent? Where you feel convicted today to say, you know what? I have too much world in me in this. And I'm not going to draw the line for you because I'd be far too hypocritical to ever do that. But what I will ask you to do is will you listen to the voice that's calling you to this moment and to this purpose in your life? And will you answer and will you listen to the call of God who says right now to love your neighbor, to give to the poor, to humble yourself in worship and service? Who is God laying on your heart right now that he has a purpose for you right now? For such a time as this, God is calling you. Would you repent from being so preoccupied living life on that train heading towards death and destruction and would you step off of it and give faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ, your King today? Will you listen to his voice in your life? That's what I think we should get out of the book of Esther. Let's pray. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for using broken people for your glory and for your work. And thank you, God, that you can work in all circumstances to bring restoration and healing. And so I ask God today, I ask God today that we would step off of the train not just move to the back of it. But as we think about the world and how to navigate being faithful in the midst of it, God, we want to be faithful and trusting in you. We desire to glorify you in all that we do. And God, we have so much around us and so many temptations, so many things that distract and lead us astray. And so we pray and we ask, God, that today we would have true repentance. That we would turn our hearts to you and our lives over to you. That we would walk faithfully in your kingdom. My Lord, we love you and we thank you for King Jesus. We turn our hearts over to you now. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. We stand in response for this.